And we certainly look forward not only to this lesson, but to every other lesson in this series. And we've been anticipating the beginning of this gospel meeting for some time with great excitement because we know the kind of man uh, Roger is, the kind of preaching he does, and we knew that we would be benefited and uplifted, and we pray that much fruit will come from the efforts together here in these few days. Roger and Donna are no strangers to this congregation. We've been privileged to have a part in their support for the last five years during their work in Malaysia, but he has also worked in Taiwan for many years, also in the Ukraine, a combined total of 21 years or so on the foreign field. And um, he is a diligent worker. I, I told uh, some recently that I, I get a little tired just reading his reports. It just kind of wears me out. I mean, <laughs> he is that hard a worker. When you read the work that uh, Roger has been engaged in and is engaged in, you are uh, truly impressed with the dedication that both he and Donna bring to the work of the Lord. They are blessed with three children and 12 grandchildren, and one of their grandchildren is with us today, with them, Noah, who is the youngest of Chad and uh, Reagan Dollahite. Reagan is the Campbell's daughter, and uh, Chad, a very fine gospel preacher, preaches for the Bremen congregation in Bremen, Georgia, and we're glad that Noah, uh, their youngest, is with the Campbells uh, today. Uh, Roger has been preaching for 35 years or so, and um, we appreciate so much the work, as we said, that he has done. We will not take more of his time, but we look forward to hearing the great lesson today on the greatest life ever lived. Brother Roger Campbell. to become acquainted with a number of congregations, a number of members of the church in this part of the country, and White Oak is certainly one of those blessings in our life, and so we're thankful for that association, and God willing, uh, with our work with the Grange Lake Road congregation, we'll be able to see you more often, and that'll just be another blessing in our life. About 2,000 years ago, about 2,000 years ago, a person lived on the earth Spent part of his time as a carpenter. There's no record that in his adult life he ever owned a house. He never got on the internet. He never sat on a literal throne and had an earthly army. But he's a person whose life and whose teaching has had an effect on human history. In fact, to put it in its proper perspective, this person whom we know as Jesus of Nazareth, his life and his teaching have had the greatest influence on human history that any life has ever had. And we wonder why. What's so special about Jesus? This morning in our Bible class, we talked about the greatest book ever written, the Bible. The Bible is the greatest book because it came from God. The Bible is the greatest book because it answers man's greatest questions. The Bible is the greatest book because it gives us the greatest news. 
And now then part of that good news for all mankind is a message about the greatest life ever lived. Why, why is it that the life of Jesus was the greatest life ever lived? And what lessons can I learn from that life? And what blessings can there be in my life as I examine the way Jesus lived his life? Our lesson this morning is quite straightforward. It's quite basic. And even though the things about which we'll be speaking are matters which a number in this assembly have known, well, for two centuries. You knew it in the 20th century, and you know it in the 21st century. But even though we've known these things perhaps for a long time, it's always good to have reminders. And it's always good to discuss Bible subjects, perhaps as we study these things anew, in a, in a new way. Maybe these things will help us in being better prepared to open our mouths and share this great news with other people. But we notice, first of all, this morning, the greatest life ever lived began in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Now, we mentioned this in our Bible class this morning. As we were talking about the Bible came from God and why we believe that's true and how we know that's true, we made reference to the reality that in the Bible there are a number of of fulfilled prophecies. And some of those prophecies, yeah, a great number of them, are in reference to the Messiah. In fact, when you and I study the book of Acts, when we study the book of Acts, we learn that one of the teaching methods which the early disciples used was this. When they encountered people from a Jewish background, whether it was in a Jewish synagogue, whether it was in a Jewish home, or just Jewish people on the streets. When the early Christians encountered or came in contact with people of a Jewish background, their method of teaching was often to refer to the Old Testament Scriptures and show from the Old Testament Scriptures predictions, prophecies about the coming Messiah or the coming Christ. And then they would show how those prophecies were fulfilled in the life of Jesus of Nazareth. And the only proper conclusion then can be, Jesus of Nazareth must be the one and only Christ, the one and only Messiah. Isaiah was one of the prophets who had several messages about the coming Messiah. For example, about 700 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah wrote, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And he went on to describe him as being wonderful, counselor, a mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Well, who is this son that came into the world? And how did this son come into the world? Well, Isaiah again tells us in Isaiah 7 and verse 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Not simply a female. There wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary about that. But, but a virgin female. He also identifies the gender of the child that will be born. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
that's a lot like Isaiah 9 in verse 6. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. But that's not all. And she shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Now in the book of Isaiah, we're not given an explanation what the word Emmanuel means. But when we open our Bibles to the New Testament, to the very first chapter, in Isaiah chapter 1, we read that, that quotation from Isaiah 7 and verse 14. Shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted what? God with us. And so the greatest life ever lived began in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, born of a virgin, name called Emmanuel. And we might go back and draw out from Micah 5 and verse 2 the prediction that a ruler would come forth from Bethlehem Ephratah. You might remember when those wise men came from the east, following that star, looking for baby Jesus. The question was asked in the city of Jerusalem, where is the Messiah? Where is the Christ to be born? And the answer was, according to the prophets, and they quoted from Micah 5 and verse 2, he's to be born in the town of Bethlehem. So Jesus' life, the greatest life ever lived, began in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And those prophecies throughout the life of Jesus, we see those prophecies fulfilled in a number of cases. But let's go on now. The greatest life ever lived was a flawless life. You know, as we compare different products, as we compare different products, or as we compare different people, there may be some products and some people that they make a really good impression. But we also know that with every product and every human being, there's some type of flaw. It may be hidden under the surface for a long period of time, but sooner or later that flaw will come out. Not with Jesus. Can you imagine? He lived a life on the planet Earth for more than 30 years. The Bible doesn't give us the exact age that he was when he died. We estimate around 33 or 34 years of age. But he lived a life more than 30 years and he never one time did anything wrong. He never one time said anything wrong. He never one time thought anything wrong. And he never one time left undone what needed to be done. So to say that Jesus lived a flawless life simply means that he lived a life without sin. We're told that in 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter actually was speaking to Christian slaves. And he was encouraging those Christian slaves, whether they, would whether they were treated well or whether they were not treated well. He speaks about their responsibility to their masters. And then he reminds them, you know, there was one before we came along. There was one who was mistreated. And he's talking about Jesus. There we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21. Jesus left us an example that ye should follow his steps, who did no sin, 
neither was guile found in his mouth. Look at that brief statement. Think about it there from 1 Peter 2 and verse 22 in reference to Jesus who did no sin. Somebody says, well, I don't think he was tempted. I think I could go sinless if I weren't tempted. Well, that's a false conclusion. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus was tempted, right? Seeing then we have a great high priest that is passing into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, what? Yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. And so in every aspect of life where you and I could be and are tempted, Jesus was also tempted. But the beauty of his life was he lived a flawless, sinless life. Now, in order for me to appreciate that, in order for me to really appreciate the fact that Jesus lived a flawless life, a sinless life, I first need to understand what does it mean to sin. And the Bible gives us this description or definition in 1 John 3 and verse 4. Sin is lawlessness or sin is transgression of the law. Sin is missing the mark. God has set the standard with his word. And when humans do not comply with the message of this word, that's called sin. And so for the Bible to declare that Jesus lived his entire life without ever committing sin, that simply means that Jesus lived his entire life without breaking God's law. Somebody says, well, that's impressive, but is it really that big a deal? It is that big a deal, and here's the reason. The Bible tells us that the psalmist David, in praise to the God of heaven, wrote in Psalm 92 at the very end of the last verse, verse 15, that the Lord is my rock and in him, in the Lord, is no unrighteousness. There's no unrighteousness. That is, there's no wrongdoing in the God of heaven. If we were to discuss the question, what are some of the differences between the God of heaven and humans? If we were to go around this room this morning, we could put our minds together and we could come up with a number of correct answers to that question. What are the differences between the God of heaven and humans? One of the main differences that we see is the God of heaven is what? Flawless. Sinless. That description doesn't apply to you and me. It did apply to Jesus of Nazareth, which lets us know that even though he was in a human body, he was Emmanuel, God with us. He was God in the flesh. And so Jesus' sinless life is one of the evidences of his div deity or divine nature. And so first of all, the greatest life ever lived began in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Number two, the greatest life ever lived was a flawless life. Number three, the greatest life ever lived was a life of submission to God the Father's 
will. If you have a Bible this morning, turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And as you're turning to John 8, let me remind you of a statement that we read also in the book of John in an earlier chapter. When Jesus was teaching on one occasion about himself being the bread of life, Jesus made this statement. Jesus said, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6 and verse 38. And so Jesus had a submission mentality. He recognized that as he sojourned on the planet earth, his role, his task was that of being submissive to the Father's will. And so we might wonder this morning, and I think we already know the answer from our last point, how frequently or how often was Jesus submissive to his heavenly Father? The rest of us, well, we think about children. They could be small children. They could be teenage children or they could be late teens. We see their lives and sometimes they are a wonderful demonstration of submission. At other times, eh, not so good. Sometimes that's the way it is with us in our dealings with civil government. Sometimes that's the way it is with us in dealing with our employers. Or maybe sometimes that's the way it is with us in dealing with people in authority. And so our question again, what about Jesus? How frequent and how often was his submission to the Father? Look at a verse that I find very eye-opening. It's chapter 8. Chapter 8. Look with me, if you would, at verse 28 and 29. Then said Jesus unto them, When ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then shall ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself. But as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things. Now look at verse 29. And he that has sent me is with me. The Father doth not, hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. And so the submission that Jesus demonstrated in his life, it was not a one-time submission. It was not something where Jesus made a list of things to do. He submitted to God one time. He said, I'll check that off my list. I've already done that. It was not a one-time submission. It was not a one-day-per-week submission. It was not when I'm in the mood submission. It was not when everybody around me is submitting submission. Rather, as we read in verse 28, the Father was with Jesus because Jesus obeyed him or did always those things that please the Father. You and I need to try to imitate that type of submission. We understand, and God understands, that we're not going to live a flawless life. We have a Savior. We have an advocate with the Father. 
And when we sin, the Bible says in 1 John 2 and verse 1, we have an advocate with the Father. So God has made arrangements for our sins, but still we are to the best of our abilities try to emulate or imitate the submissiveness of Jesus. His submission was not conditional. His submission was unconditional. We think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He took 11 apostles to that garden on the night of his betrayal. He told eight to stay in one place. He took three and went a little bit further. He took John and he took James and he took Simon Peter. And then he told them to wait and Jesus went further and he prayed. And the Bible tells us that he prayed the same thing, the same words, three times. And as part of that prayer in which he opened his heart to the Father, he made this request. Recorded in Luke 22 and verse 42. Father, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but what? Thy will be done. So Jesus' submissiveness to the Father was not conditional. Jesus did not come up with a list and say, God, you meet this, you meet this demand, you meet this demand, you meet this demand, and then we can talk about submission. No, sorry. His was a life of submission, even to the very end. That night, when he prayed to the Father, a different prayer, not the one in the garden before he got to the garden. When he prayed to the Father, we read it in John 17. He said, I have finished the works that thou gavest me to do. Oh, we can learn so much from the submissiveness of Jesus. It was unsubmissive. It was unconditional submission. It was constant submission. It was to the end submission. It was submission in all places, at all times, and with all people. But let's look forthly this morning. The greatest life ever lived was a life of love supreme. You see, I think when I'm writing notes, I'll just call it a life of supreme love. Knock yourself out. Same thing. Love supreme or supreme love. And that love that Jesus had was like his submission in the sense that it was unconditional. It it came from the heart of a servant. Jesus' love was selfless. Jesus' love was not about me, but about others. Isn't that what true love really is? Isn't that what agape is? It's not about me. It's about what's good for others. Jesus said the Son of Man came not to be ministered to, which simply means He didn't come to be served, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Mark 10 and verse 45. And so Jesus had the heart of a servant and He had a heart of love that cared about other people. Jesus made this statement on the night before he was crucified. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Right? John 15 and verse number 13. And so the love that Jesus had, it was a selfless love. It was an unconditional love. It was a continuous love, and it was a love connected with his submission. You might remember on the day that Jesus was crucified. There were those who passed by his cross, and and they mocked Jesus. 
They mocked Jesus and said, look at that. He saved other people, but he cannot save himself. And they said, look, Jesus, if you'll just come down, we'll, we'll believe in you. All of those things said in complete mockery. You see, Jesus had already demonstrated his miraculous power. The Bible tells us in John 12 and verse 37 that Jesus did many miracles before them, but they believed not. And their statement, he saved others, himself he cannot save, well, they were totally wrong about that one. It was not a question. It was not a question, did Jesus have the power to come down from the cross? He who could walk on the water. He who could raise the dead. He who could take a little bit of food and feed 5,000 men plus women and children. He who could calm a storm by saying, peace be still. He who could tell a lame man to take up his bed and walk. He had the power to avoid the cross and he had the power to come down from the cross. It wasn't a question of power. It's a question of submission to the Father's will. And love for lost people. Why did Jesus stay on the cross? Because of you and because of me. Somebody says, well, what was plan B? There was no plan B for man's salvation. Jesus was the Alpha and the Omega of God's plan of salvation. He was the first and the last Savior. It's going to be through Him or it's not going to happen. And that's real love. Real love that doesn't ask, what do I get out of it? But real love that asks, what's good for others? And so you and I need to do our very best in imitating that type of unconditional love, that type of selfless love, that type of sacrificial love that wants what's best for other people. You know, Jesus said, no greater love hath man than this that a man lay down his life for his friends. Well, Jesus did that. But you know, Jesus went beyond laying down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for the Roman soldiers who put him on that cross. And the Roman governor who gave the command, crucify him. And the Jewish leaders who laughed when he was crucified. Jesus died for every person. That's unconditional love. So the greatest life ever lived was a love supreme. Finally this morning, that life had to end somewhere. Jesus, when he came into the earth to live as a human, had to die as a human. He came to save humans, and so he himself became a human, and becoming a human, he had to pass through the things of life through which other humans pass. He had to physically grow from a little boy into a 12-year-old when he went with Joseph and Mary to Jerusalem and was left behind. And he had to mature socially and physically just like the rest of us do. And his life came to an end. And unless I've missed it in the English language, as often as we use that word, and as often as we have that word in our songs, the word Calvary is only used one time in the English Bible. If you'd like to see it, it's in Luke chapter 23. 
Most of the time, in the Bible, instead of having the word Calvary, we have the word Golgotha, which literally means the place of the skulls. Now, I, I'm going to be honest. I've not investigated. Maybe some of the newer versions don't even have the word Calvary. Well, let me say this. I've investigated, but my forgetter is working better than my remember. Okay? So I don't remember what some of those newer versions say. They may say Golgotha. But in Luke chapter 23 and verse 33, here's what the Bible says. And when they were come to the place, which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the male factors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. I remember as a child thinking that the word crucified or crucifixion indicated that as soon as Jesus was crucified, death resulted. Well, that's not true, is it? Crucifixion is the literal act of pounding the nails through the body and attaching the body on the cross. Now, in the case of Jesus, death came Six hours later. For others it could have come sooner. It could have come later. But the greatest life ever lived. Ended. At Calvary. Why Calvary? Well. That's where the Roman officials. In the territory of Judea and Jerusalem. That's where the Roman officials. Carried out capital punishment. You saw there in verse 33. Jesus was not the only one crucified on that day. And Jesus was not the only one crucified at Calvary. On his right hand and on their left. On his left there were two criminals. So, so why was he crucified at that place? Because that's the place that the Romans used for the death penalty. Well why is Jesus doing something with the Romans? Because... The Jewish leaders, in hatred of Jesus, took Jesus on the morning of his crucifixion, early in the day, to the Roman governor by the name of Pontius Pilate. Well, why did they take Jesus there? Because they wanted to kill him. Why did they want to kill him? Because they hated him. They were jealous of him. They did not believe his claims about himself. Well, how did they get a hold of Jesus? Because Judas Iscariot turned him over. So, so if you look at how all of those things transpired, you see one by one the role of Judas. You see the role of the Jewish leaders. You see the role of Pontius Pilate. You see the role of the Roman soldiers who put his body on the cross. But we also look to the spiritual significance of what happened there. In the Old Testament, God told the children of Israel in the law of Moses through Moses that life is in the blood. Luke 17 and verse 10. And so in order for you and me to have spiritual life, Jesus gave His life, gave His blood that we might have life. In 1 Peter chapter 1, near the end of that chapter, Peter's talking about redemption. And Peter reminds the Christian, we're not Christians, we're not redeemed by gold or silver 
or vain conversation from our forefathers' traditions, but by the blood of Christ, who as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Right? What did he do? He gave his life for us. When you think about the animal sacrifices of the Old Testament era. Those animals, they weren't guilty of sin, were they? They weren't guilty of sin. So when, when the Israelite people brought their animals to the priest and those, those sacrifices were made, those sacrifices were made on behalf of the humans who had sinned. The animals were innocent. In the same way the Lord Jesus lived that flawless life. He was a lamb without blemish and without spot. But the Bible says that John the baptizer said, Behold the Lamb of God which what? Taketh away the sin of the world. Where did he do that? At Calvary. God's justice said, Somebody has to pay the price for sin. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. Somebody's got to pay the price. That's what God's justice said. And God's mercy said, here is a selfless sacrifice. Jesus took our place. That through the torture and the pain and the blood that he endured, the sorry people, that you and I are, can be spared the horrors of hell and at the same time can be elevated to have the hope of enjoying the delights of heaven. The greatest life ever lived began in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. The greatest life ever lived was a flawless life. The greatest life ever lived was a life of submission to God's will. The greatest life ever lived was a life of love supreme. And the greatest life ever lived was a life that ended at Calvary. But you know what? That's not the end of the story. Jesus gave His life on the Calvary. But when those women went on the third day, on the first day of the week... To that tomb of Jesus, what did they find? They didn't find Jesus. The tomb was not empty, and the message to the women is, you seek Jesus of Nazareth. He is not here, for He is risen. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 and verse 9, death hath no more dominion over Him. He'll die no more. We serve the risen King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the first fruit from the dead, and by that coming forth from the dead, He gives you and me the hope that in the future, we too will come out of the grave, and we too will be with the Father in heaven forever and ever. The greatest life ever lived can be a blessing to your life, and can be a blessing to my life, if we'll accept the message of God's Word. We'll accept that message about Jesus, 
And we'll take that message and we'll not only accept it, but we'll, be, we'll believe it, we'll obey the commands given, and we'll do our best to live like Jesus wants us to live, and we'll do our best, God being our helper, to tell other people about the flawless life that ended in Calvary and the hope that we can have through the risen Son of the living God. Maybe you're here today and you believe that Jesus is the Son of God. But you've been waiting. Don't wait any longer. If you know that Jesus is the Son of God and you're ready to lay aside your sins in repentance and you're ready to confess Jesus courageously and ready to be immersed in water, today the blood of Jesus will wash away your sins. God will add your name to the book of life and God will never look back on your past life. Or maybe you're here today and you need the prayers of the saints as a child of God. It's God's invitation. If it's convenient, would you stand as we sing together.